the book of Revelation, chapter 5 this morning. Uh, just remember the things that we studied last week that, uh, that John is having, has had this vision that is given to him uh, of the throne room that we would call the heavenly throne room. Uh, but I want to remind us this morning that uh, what we're talking about here is not the center of the universe. As you read a lot of the commentaries, they talk about the universe, the universe, the universe. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the what we would call the heavenly or the spiritual realm. In other words, it's a realm that exists. Uh, it's just as real as the one that we ourselves live in. We we don't perceive it, uh, except maybe on special occasions. Maybe God would give us the ability to perceive some of these things. Uh, but n- and normally, these things are beyond our comprehension where we are right now. But they are real. Uh, and the, and the, the basically, what you will get from chapter 5 is this, is what's going on here is worship. We've seen this already, that these 24 elders that are uh, on these 24 thrones around the throne of God, that they, they fall down regularly before him, and they cast their crowns at the base of the, uh, of the throne, and they worship him. We've, we've talked about the four seraphim that are there that are tending God, these heavenly beings that uh, sound like something from a sci-fi movie or a book. Uh, are ministering to him continually, and they're worshiping him continually. And what we're going to find today is the expansiveness of that worship increases. Uh, It gets bigger and bigger uh, and bigger by the time we get to the end of uh, chapter 5. But we're going to be beginning uh, with verse 1 in chapter 5 this morning. And I saw the right hand of him who sat on the the throne, a book written inside on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne uh, with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him, who sat on the throne, and when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break uh, its seals, and for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures 
and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the land be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and the four living creatures kept saying amen uh, the elders fell down and worshiped so we understand that the one that he sees sitting on the throne is none other than God the father right Jesus is very uh, much in the forefront, uh, and we've seen that in every chapter up through chapter 3, but in chapter 4, Jesus doesn't really appear. When we see first here of this vision of the throne room of God, there is no mention of the presence of Jesus. Now, remember this, that Jesus had said to John, come up here. In other words, come up to where I am. So we need to understand the son has been here, but he just has not been that obvious. And what we're going to find in chapter 5 is this sudden and dramatic appearance of Jesus into the heavenly throne room and the worship that takes place as a result of that. John looks and he sees in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book. Uh, some translations say scroll. I think probably scroll is what it probably ought to be. I mean, the Greek can be interpreted either way, but, but at this particular time in history, books were not very much known that scrolls were the, were the thing. And there's, I mean, there's arguments you can give one way or the other. But I would say to you this morning, it doesn't really matter if it was a scroll or a book. What matters is who the author of it was and what the content was. So we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about this. Notice here that it was written inside and on the back, which makes you think maybe a scroll, even though that was not the normal practice. Normally scrolls were only written on one side. It could speak to the fact that there was just a huge amount of information contained uh, in this scroll that there was not enough writing room on one side, that it required both sides of it. Again, don't want to speculate too much on those sorts of things. Uh, It is sealed up with seven seals. Now just remember, the number seven represents perfection. Okay. So I just want to say to you, what we're saying here is this scroll is perfectly sealed up, absolutely sealed up. With these seven seals. Now, uh, seals served a purpose. Typically, they were wax. So you need to understand something. That's, that, that, uh, that, that seals were not really used to protect documents from ever being opened from people other than certain people. The purpose of seals was to seal those documents up in such a manner that no one could go in and tamper with the contents and change what was said in that document. So we need to understand the things that are written in this document, this scroll, these are things that are fixed by God. They are unchangeable. 
They are things that God has said, and they will not be changed by anyone. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Now, it's interesting here. This is an angel or, of uh, either strong or powerful or mighty angel. In other words, this angel stood out from all the other angels being described as powerful. The only thing I could possibly think of it maybe this maybe it has something to do with the fact that even this powerful, this almighty angel could not open the scroll. There is something that is necessary to open the scroll that God has written and I want to say this too that we need to understand something that that God the Father has this which is indicative of the fact that he possesses it is his and and we have every reason to believe that he is the author of it as well but notice this in verse 2 the message of this strong angel who is worthy to open the book and to break the seals. In other words, there is a right combination. There is a key for opening this scroll. And it's expressed in one word. Worthiness. Whoever opens it must be worthy to open it. No one found among men or even of angels could open this book. John is brought to tears by that prospect. And I want you to know something. He wasn't just weeping. He was crying vehemently. What if this were true? What if that Bible that is in your lap, what if that Bible that is under the pew in front of you, what if this Bible, what if they were, they were we know that the God is the author of these rites. We know that the Bible is very important, has very important information, and we need to realize that this is one of the things that distresses John so much, is he knows it's really important. And he wants desperately to know what it says. What if you and I knew that the Bible was the word of God? What if we knew that the Bible was authored by God himself? That on every Bible that you had ever seen, there were seals on it that prevented it from being opened. That it was locked closed. The whole time you knowing that God wrote it and knowing that it had really, really, really super important things in it. But it was closed to you because God had sealed it up. How do you think that might make you feel? Maybe a little distressed. 
made me very curious, wanting desperately to know what Ed actually did say. It might even bring us to tears. Thankfully, that's not true for the Bible. That in fact, God is the author. That God has made it open to every one of us to pick up, to read, to listen, to hear what he has to say. Maybe we should take advantage of that and not take it for granted. Because God didn't have to do that. He didn't have to say anything. He didn't have to do anything. But he has given us a very great gift, a very great privilege. And that is to read what he has to say about just about everything. Let's not take it for granted. Let's take advantage of it. One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold the lion that is of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Almost there and say, Elder says to him, Stop being such a wimp. Stop weeping. Because there is one that can open the book, that can break those seven seals. But remember this, there is one and there is only one. Here he's described in a number of different ways, the Lion of Judah. If you think back to Genesis chapter 49, this was the the blessing of Jacob upon his son Judah. That he would be the line of the kings, and the scepter would never, a scepter would never depart from between his knees. We know that this line of Judah is Jesus. One of the reasons that we have the genealogies for Jesus in the gospel is to demonstrate to us this clear, unbroken line of descendancy from David all the way down to Jesus. That Jesus is that Lion of Judah. That Jesus is the fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy. He's also called the Root of David, a descendant of David. So not just of Judah, but also of the house of David. Because we know that David was the king uh, that was the by God as a man after his own heart. Not a perfect man. Did a lot of bad things. But God loved David and David loved God. And God promised him an eternal kingdom through him. That one of his descendants would sit upon the throne. And that his kingdom would never ever be taken away from him that it would be an eternal kingdom. And we know that Jesus is 
the fulfillment of what's called the Davidic covenant, those Davidic promises, the promises that God made to King David. He is the one. He is the one and only one that is able to take the book and break the seals and make the contents known. Now appears Jesus. And I saw him between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the uh, seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What I would say to you is this has been my conviction for many, many years. Is what we're seeing in this vision, there's a number of things going on here. But one of the primary things that is being revealed to us is this. This is the reception of Jesus into heaven at the time he ascended from the earth. Where he is being received into the throne room of God. Where he is being received by the heavenly hosts. And where they are worshiping him. Sounds kind of weird that he appears as a lamb. And it's a lamb with its throat cut, basically. Should remind us of the Passover lamb. Because we know that Jesus is ultimately the Passover lamb. Isaiah chapter 53 talks about Christ coming as a lamb led to slaughter. So this picture of Jesus did not really surprise us. This is kind of an unusual depiction of Jesus. But it should not surprise us at all. He has seven horns. Just remember, seven is representative perfection of completeness. If you look at the book of Daniel, you're going to find there that horns very often represent kingdoms. And so what I would say is it would be speculated to some degree, but maybe what's being demonstrated to us here is this, is that his kingdom is a perfect kingdom. It's an absolute kingdom. It's the complete kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. He has seven eyes. which are the eyes, or are the seven spirits of God. So it tells us, what are the spirits of God? Well, we studied the seven spirits of God back in the very beginning, and, and it seems pretty apparent that it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. That this lamb of slain is greatly endowed with the Spirit of God. He came. And he took it. He took the book. He took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And notice here, the Father freely gives it to him. He wouldn't give it to anybody else. No angel, no man, no anyone. 
but he freely gives it to his son. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. They've already done that. We talked a lot last week about uh, the perpetual worship of God, that these creatures, these beings, they worship God continually, unceasingly. In everything they do, they're worshiping God. And we challenge ourselves with the idea that worship really should be one of the primary characteristics of our life, that everything that we do, in some sense of the word, should have worship about it, that what we do, we do for the honor and the glory of God, all the things that we do, everything that we do. See, they're worshiping. But notice here, well, for, first of all, for the lamb to take the book from the father, he had to approach the throne. So, you know, originally he appears suddenly here between where the elders are in the throne. Now at this point, he's approached the throne and he's taken the, the scroll out of that right hand of God, the father. Now, let me just say something about that I meant to say before too. You need to understand that God doesn't have hands. This is what's called an anthropomorphism. In other words, it's figurative language that we find in Scripture sometimes to speak about God in a way that we can humanly understand it. In other words, giving God human characteristics when God doesn't have human characteristics, except in the humanity of Jesus. But the Lamb comes and he takes the, thr- he takes the, he takes the scroll. And what I would say to you, too, is there's a lot more going on here. That, if you consider the ending of the Gospel of Matthew, what we call the Great Commission. All power and authority in heaven and earth has been given unto him. If you consider Psalm 110, when the Lord says to my Lord, come and sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus now, at this point, is sitting on the throne with God the Father. He's at the center of everything. And notice here, the worship that is going on is not only worshiping God the Father, it is also worshiping God the Son. And when we remember the description of the throne, it talked about the seven spirits of God that were before the throne, that the Holy Spirit is here too, that what we're talking about here is Trinitarian worship. These angelic beings and these elders, they are worshiping the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three. And these elders, they are having each one of them a harp. And and if you know anything about harps, very often they're used 
uh, in the Psalms you find them, and David played the harp, and uh, and very often when we think about harps, we think about the we might some people might call it the instrument of God. And harps were so often used for worship of God. You know, we think about angels having harps. Not a lot of big old basis for that. Uh, have you ever heard a harp played? You know, harps that we're talking about in the Bible are very different than the ones we have now. You need to realize that, that they didn't have all the strings that the harps that we, we, we have now do. Uh, they had 8 or 10 or 12 or 20 strings, not 50 or 60 or 100 strings. There's actually a lady that we know that plays the harp, and I've heard the harp played one time, I think, in my whole lifetime. And it really is an amazing instrument. But I was thinking the other day, you know, there are a lot of people who believe like that the, 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 the piano or the organ are the ordained instruments for using in worship services. Have you ever thought about this, that a piano basically is almost like a harp that's been turned on its side? Very similar to that. A stringed instrument that is utilized in the worship of, of God. But each one of these elders had a harp, and they also had golden bowls full of incense. Now, that should remind us of something. And that something is the altar of incense that was in the tabernacle first and then later in the temple. And the, whole, the Old Testament helps us to understand what is going on here. That fundamentally, ultimately, what it means is that prayers of the people of God are being poured out before him. The incense was burned in the tabernacle, uh, the temple, unceasingly. The prayers of God's people, the saints. A sweet odor to God. A fragrance that he loves. Have you ever thought about your prayers as such? Sometimes we pray because we're told to pray, right? We do it. Sometimes we, 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 we do it wrongfully. Sometimes, other times we do it rightfully. Sometimes we do it for the wrong reasons. Sometimes we have absolutely wrong approach in doing it. We do it out of drudgery. We do it because we have to do it or some other wrong reason for doing it. And let me just say, if we ever pray and our heart is not in it, we don't really mean what we're saying. We're wasting our time. We're spinning in the wind. That prayer is all about God. Prayer is all about getting focused on God. And it's not just about asking him for things. I think a lot of people believe that the whole purpose of prayer is to ask God to do things. To ask God for gifts. And that's certainly part of it. But what you would find is most of the prayers that are in Scripture are not like that at all. What they are is they are prayers of worship. Prayers that have the design of worshiping God. Not their very central meaning. God hears every one of them. 
God hears every one of your prayers. And I'll say this this morning, God answers every one of your prayers. Now, he may not always give you the answer that you want. Or you think maybe he ought to give you. But we need to understand this. That God is, is, is our Heavenly Father. He wants the very best for us. And he, he's like a parent. He knows what is really best for us. He knows far better than we do what is best for us. And sometimes he says no. What parent, what worthy parent would always tell their children yes? What would you and I think of those children when they grew up? They would probably be spoiled to the yin-yang and not really have any sense at all of what life, living life responsibly in this world would even remotely look like. So God may tell you no, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. What he's telling you is, I'm going to tell you no, but I'm still there with you and we will get through it. I will get you through it. I have reasons why I'm telling you no. Reasons that you don't even understand. But I'm your father and I know best. Always. These 24 elders that we've seen them fall down before the throne a number of times and cast their crowns and praise God. Verse 9, they sang a new song. And what is this new song that they're singing? Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and its purchased for God with thy blood, men from every tribe and tongue, and nation, and thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Do you understand one of the reasons I believe this is Jesus appearing in the heavenly throne room after his ascension into heaven? Is there ascribing to him all the things that he accomplished while he was in, uh, on earth, living that life of perfect righteousness? For you and I, that we would have salvation. But they are ascribing to him the worthiness. The worthiness cannot be ascribed to anyone else. No angel, no man, no woman. Only to the unique being of Jesus Christ. The God-man, the one who is both God and man. The only one that could conceivably bridge the gap between holy God and sinful man is one who is both. God and man at the same time. He's described as being worthy because he is the worthy sacrifice.
And that sacrifice was made for us. That one of these days that we will be gathered with these heavenly hosts and we will be worshiping God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. He's worthy to take the book. He's worthy to break its seals and he's the only one who is. Why? Because he was slain and did buy for God people from among every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Every people group. This ought to encourage us for a lot of reasons, and one of those is this. Is the church will show itself to be faithful to the Great Commission. It will. Because if it doesn't, then this could not take place. Sometimes we fret about it. We think maybe we haven't, we're not being as faithful as we need to be to spread the gospel to all the remote places of the world. And there's some people who really believe this. The reason Jesus hasn't come back is because we haven't taken the initiative to do that, to make sure that every person that lives on planet Earth hears about the gospel. You and I should be a whole lot more faithful in that commission. But what I'm telling you is this, is in the end, the church will show itself to be faithful to what God's called it to do. Because there are people there represented from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Everyone. Sometimes called the church universal. Church that exceeds every barrier that humankind would put between people. Bringing them all together in one common group. The group that we call the church of Jesus Christ. He looked and he heard the voice of many angels around the throne and living creatures. And and they're saying the same thing. The worthy is... The Lamb, described as myriads and myriads. What it basically really says is ten thousands of ten thousands. So many angels you can't even begin to count them. And what are they doing? They are joining with those four creatures, those heavenly creatures and those 24 elders. And they are worshiping God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, it goes all the way and includes every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all things in them. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. All creatures. Worshiping. doesn't mention it here, but there is a place where there is no worship that goes on. And we call it hell. Jesus calls it hell. 
Jesus is coming back to this world. And this is where he's going to establish his eternal kingdom. And he will be worshipped here. God is worthy. He is worthy of absolute devotion. He is worthy of praise. He is worthy of glory. He is worthy of every good thing we could possibly give to him. I've challenged this a couple of times over the last week or so with the idea that some people might have that, you know, God is just this, has this big pride and he just, he loves to be worshipped and so he created a bunch of beings so that he could just hear them declare to him over and over again how great and wonderful he is and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's not at all what we're talking about. We're talking about beings who have experienced him in such a way they understand that that is what he is worthy of. He is worthy of unceasing praise and worship. They do it because they can't do anything else. They can't do anything less. The four living creatures kept saying, Amen or Amen. Which means truly. How often do we say that word without really thinking about what it means? I mean, how many times in your life have you ever said a prayer without ending it with Amen? You understand what you're saying when you do that? You're saying, may these things truly be. The elders fall down again. They worship the God of worthiness, the God of greatness, the God of glory. The God incomprehensible to us. The God who made us in his image. And the God who sent his son into this world to live and die. That those who would place their faith in him would be forgiven of their great sins against him. And would worship him. Not out of obligation. Not because they're forced to do it, but because the desire of the essence of their very being can do nothing 